Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of On The Whistle. This is your host, Gary, and I'm super excited to have a lifelong friend of mine on the show today, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Griffin. And uh, I met Steve, was a classmate of my brother in high school, and I'm about three, three and a half years younger than both my brother and Steve. And they both cared for me and took me under their wing. My brother was biologically obligated to do so. And Steve was just a good guy. And uh, I grew up around Steve. We went to the same high school together. And uh, just looking backwards, Steve was a super talented athlete, solid tennis player, but had an affinity for all things hand-eye coordinated and became a very, very, very good baseball player, went on to play baseball at Providence College, and we've remained lifelong friends. And recently, Steve has written a fascinating book named Front Row Seat. It's available on uh, Amazon. And if you're a Amazon Kindle Unlimited user, it's free. And it's also available in paperback via Prime to get delivered, certainly before the holiday. Front Row Seat's a It's a story of greed and corruption in the youth sports industry, and specifically one company in particular that Steve found himself investing in, as well as acting as a CEO. And as a background, Steve has been a former CPA. I don't know if you're currently, Steve, uh, CPA. Do you currently maintain your license? No, no, I don't maintain the license. But he was a CPA and is, uh, you know, is... An Excel genius, as I, I look at it, and uh, all around great guy. So, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Very nice introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So, Steve, one of the things that I just want to get out in front is, while the book is based on a true story, you've obviously changed the names of the individuals associated with the book and the names of the companies that you are either investing in or operating at the time. And, um, but based on that, the facts of the book are accurate. Is that a fair assessment? Correct. Yeah, the, the, the facts are 100% accurate. They, some names have been changed primarily because of two reasons. There is some ongoing litigation, and some of those litigants are rather uh, aggressive, I'd say, and um, so wanted to temper things a bit with those folks. And the second matter is there is an ongoing and very active criminal investigation led by the U.S. Department of Justice. And so until that comes full circle, um, 
for a number of reasons we wanted to uh, change some names, but but the no embellishment, very detailed, and um, facts and circumstances are are accurate. Steve, the first thing I want to reflect on in reading the book and and knowing about your journey through your life is it appears to me that the company that you found yourself involved with almost had no soul. And it's the only way I can describe it in comparison to other organizations or coaches that I've had on the show or we've worked with, you know, with our parent company, Squad Locker. They seem to have these other uh, underlying efforts or directions about what they're trying to achieve. Mission. Thank you. Thank you. I was looking mm-hmm. for the word. So like these guys at Steel Sports, I don't know if you're familiar with Steel Sports, but they're driven with, yeah. you know, really helping kids become successful adults and contributing in the world. And, you know, like Digit Murphy, who I who I interviewed recently, I mean, she's all about, you know, getting these young women engaged and and, you know, finding their voices and stuff. And in reading the book, I didn't hear a lot of that. I didn't feel a lot of that. And I'm just wondering, like. Did you. Yeah. Sense the same thing I did. And, and yeah. Why is there such a yeah. huge black hole, yeah, hole there, if you will? Yeah. yeah. So it's a great question. So let's back. I mean, let me back up just a bit because I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't sort of lay this out. So I, I've invested in a number of um, sports related businesses, live event businesses, you know, operators of tournaments showcases, club programs, all the way through to uh, a business that was a software company that Mark Cuban and I actually were investors in, uh, along with Chris Patton, who you know, that operated and and, uh, provided cognitive training, so virtual repetition to really elite athletes, both pro and, and college. So been around the space a little bit. I, I'm a capitalist. I, I believe if you operate a business well you and you identify attractive market, there's upside for those people who you know deploy resources. Having said that, I believe that this this market in particular, the subcollegiate youth sports market, whether it's you know the bottom of the pyramid closer to the rec level or the top of the pyramid being the very elite aspirational portion of the marketplace, deserves something else, right? They deserve programming that's embedded with good values based what is sportsmanship why are you an important member of your community how do you treat teammates how do you win with humility you know lose with dignity if you are given the opportunity to participate in sports then maybe you should be giving something else back to the community through philanthropy volunteerism etc so so i do personally have that view of this business right i i, I don't want to just make money in the youth sports market and not feel like we're doing good at the same time. I believe that was also initially part of the charter for what we'll call Epic company in the book. At some point, I think that the management team, the incumbent management team failed to live sort of those values day in and day out. It kind of went off the rails at some point. I'm not so cynical that I don't think they believe that. Many of the people that work there believed in a mission of, you know, providing great experiences for families. But at some point, there were financial elements 
There were related party transactions. There were competing businesses that weren't disclosed. There were a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that overshadowed and sort of overwhelmed the mission, if you will, of the business. Does that make sense? Sure. Makes perfect sense. And so the, the thing that I'm most curious about is, you know, I've known you for a long time and you're very, very sharp uh, reader of people. And uh, I think you may have once told me that puppies and kids, no bad people or some funny quote like that. <laughs> but how did your spider senses not, not go off early on this thing? Yeah, I, I, I blew it, in my opinion. Right? I missed it. Um, and it's funny, I'm actually giving a presentation right after the new year to an organization of internal auditors of all things as a former CPA on how did I miss certain red flags and not just me, but we had third party due diligence done both on financial and legal side. I had other co-investors alongside of me that missed it as well. And so here's how I would summarize it. First and foremost, I am extremely bullish and, and, and positive on the market itself, right? The, the youth sports market, the industry, and the opportunity. It's a big market. It's really fragmented. You know, a lot of small operators. Uh, and there's an opportunity to sort of elevate the experience um, from just the logistics of operating a club or an event all the way through to sort of those values that I discussed earlier, really infusing those in the And so I think there was a little bit of sort of irrational exuberance um, in terms of, hey, you know, we if we see a few flaws in this business, it's okay because it's a really big market. And so I think there was an excitement level of we like the space and this looks like it could be a good platform. And let's put kind of those negative things we see or those red flags off to the side. That's sort of two categories, I guess. The more those red flags pop, they tended to be things that we viewed, believe it or not, as opportunity. So, for example, the management team, sort of the leadership early on during diligence had inconsistent communication. Right? We could reshape that in our minds as, all right, they're not that sophisticated. They're not that refined. They're entrepreneurs. We'll help them with processes like that going forward. Systems weren't integrated as much as we wanted them, meaning things like from registration all the way through to the general ledger. Opportunity, right? Like, that's what we're good at. We'll identify the workflow. We'll invest in systems. We'll bring in better accounting staff. And by the time we get done, we'll have a machine here that can be a seamless consumer experience all the way through to marketing analytics and so on. So I think those things that we normally would have seen as red flags, we tried to put in buckets as opportunity because we were so excited and so bullish on the industry. And we, we underweighted those red flags, clearly. And then the last thing I'd say is, look, a liar never tells you they're lying to you. Yeah, right. you know, so, that's the hard you one, know, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I, there's a... The, the liar has a distinct advantage, right? I operate from a position of trust. You and I have a conversation. I may not agree with your position on something, but I inherently believe that what you're sharing with me, you believe to be true. And 
even in our society, pushing back too much, you know, is, is looked down upon, right? You, you can only ask the question so many times before it gets uncomfortable. And so that combination of operating from a, a position of trust and being deliberately misled, you know, it's, it's hard to dig out from under that. And, and um, information you get in a very short period of time for your due diligence is always management prepared. And so you're at the mercy of the information that's being provided to you. You know, um, there's a fascinating dichotomy in the book between the facts that you're revealing to the reader and your own personal take on the facts. And since I know you as a friend, I'm reading into the way you're writing about yourself. And, you know, I, I can see and hear Steve Griffin and a lot of the writing because I knew you well. You talk about being uncomfortable as a quote in the book. It says, this company had made me quite comfortable being uncomfortable. What did you mean by that, Steve? So I finally had gotten to the point where every day, that's a overstatement, but, you know, consistently there was something happening in this business that was challenging, that was, uh, that didn't add up, that forced difficult conversation. And so that back to what I said a moment ago of asking question two or three times, changing the way you ask it to try to get to the right answer, um, asking for supporting information or documentation in a normal environment where you would fear that the person across from you would think that you don't trust them and it would be uncomfortable. I'd gotten to the point that I was entirely comfortable asking those difficult questions. I, I knew I had experienced that so many times that I was finally at the point where it doesn't matter. You know, I, I've got a Department of Justice search and seizure warrant on my desk. I am going to call up an individual who works in that division and ask them very difficult questions about the way they process visas for our employees. You know, it was just, uh, it became a very toxic, uncomfortable place. And you had to show up every day and operate in that environment. You know, um, you and I were fortunate enough to go to a prep school that spoke about the importance of truth. In fact, the motto of the school yep. is for the honor of truth, which is a uh, uh, an introduction to one of your paragraphs. I'm just curious, thinking back on on your experience around the Quaker values of Moses Brown School and yep. some great coaches and mentors that you and I experienced at the school. Did that? Do those values? Did you find them coming up? Yeah. Were they guiding you, or were yeah. they were they so old that they were just no. kind of a normal part of your routine? No, more more relevant than ever, and coming to life. During it, it's probably a very interesting exercise on, you know, or study on how your brain works. Yeah, because there's a lot of awakening, Steve, of you in this book. And <laughs> yeah. you reflect on them. You said, and then I got to this point, and then I got to that point, and then I started realizing. Yes, yeah. remarkable. Yeah. And yeah, so what's interesting is, like, like, I mean, if you would ask me, and, and we talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, the theme of your podcast, which I think is terrific, you know, around people that have influenced you, coaches that have influenced you, and so on. You know, sort of to tie it back to that, right? It was sort of two men, you know, if you know, not to just narrow it to two, but sort of two two men that that were that, that have been in my life. When I think about values and moral compass and principles, one is my dad. Like, right? like I always used to say to people, like if I was making a business decision or thinking about 
what's the right thing to do in this situation. It's very, it's a very simple litmus test for me. Is what would Phil Griffin do? You know, he's a very highly principled guy that would never compromise his values um, in making business judgment. Uh, the other is actually a guy that was only, you know, in my life at a very for a very short period of time, quite frankly, but at a very formidable period of my life, which was our baseball coach at Moses Brown, a guy named Paul Donovan, who passed away not too long ago. And, you know, Paul was, although he it was his first year at Moses Brown after a long career of coaching at Hope High School, and, and before that, you know, and he was an English teacher, and before that he was a professional baseball player. He was a man of sort of quiet integrity. He lived a values-based life. He made you know that he cared about you as an individual, whether you were the the starting shortstop or you, you know, played one inning every two games, you knew he cared about you as a person. He lived his life around discipline and sportsmanship and not being flashy, you know, just showing up and doing the job every day. And and I think about how that dovetailed with, you know, sort of the Quaker values of Moses Brown and, and, and you know, the, the, the slogan, if you will, of, for the honor of truth. And there came a point where, you know, in the book, where you, you feel like you just, every time you turn around, you're getting kicked in the gut. And, like, you know, this can't continue. And, you talked only, about it as you know, a boxing match, Steve. You said every day okay, this yeah. company felt like a boxing match. Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, body blow after body blow, whatever. And mm-hmm. so, you, you know, you either, either just, you know, go down to a knee and say, that's it, I'm done. Or you say, no, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. Number one, we've got customers, we've got employees, we have uh, investors, we have lenders, we have auditors, we have uh, attorneys, we have all these stakeholders that are, that want the best here. And we're not going to lose and we're not going to um, give in uh, to those that have made a series of decisions based on lies or misrepresentations or greed or corruption or whatever it was. And so, you know, I think, I think the ability to reflect back on a couple of people like that and how they live their life or the themes that we were taught at Moses Brown um, provide a really important sort of reinforcement of your own value set at moments like that. Um, there's an interesting characteristic of the book where you're trying to walk a balance beam or a tightrope between finding harmony with the organization that you're working in. And I can tell you're trying to encourage the right behaviors and not be so disruptive that the efforts of the people that were working would lose traction or it would start to break apart. The teams would start to break apart. And that sounded really challenging because I can tell in the book that your intentions were to drive success and harmony and you could only push so hard so often and and i think you know being in a team there's like quiet leaders there's loud leaders they're both important but there's this sense that you've got to kind of always balance your own personal behavior to figure out how you're going to integrate into a, a bigger group yeah it's a great quote in the book where you go down to a golf event, you get invited down to a golf event. And I guess uh, you guys played well. And some of the guys got some credits at the golf shop and you're right. The guys were thrilled. They bought shirts in the pro shop with their credits. More importantly, they liked me. I knew when to speak up and when to keep my mouth shut. 
how did that work for you? How did you figure out when to speak up and when to keep your mouth shut? And, and why was being well, liked important? Well, so that, 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 that quote actually goes back to when I was in public accounting. So that was, that was, that's a reference to You're right. First. You're right. I misspoke. You're yeah, right. But it, no, no, but that's okay. But that's, that's right. Relevant. That was when the, uh, the, the head guy, uh, one of the bigger um, guys Partners. in the firm yeah. found out you were a yeah. decent golfer and snatched you for a member member. Yeah. Yeah. So, but two, two, so there's two elements off that I'd say. Number one was as a young person, you know, having that opportunity of being exposed to something like that, that was sort of, for me, that was an eye opener of, oh, okay. You know, particularly as an accountant. Okay. Um, you know, part of the job, part of your career, part of work, um, you know, is more than just being in a cubicle with my head down working in an Excel, you know, spreadsheet or what have you, right? There, there's an element of building trust and building relationships and, and I guess, you know, business development and so on. And those are things that typically, you know, are not necessarily in the makeup of someone who chooses the accounting profession, right? They prefer to be in the numbers or preparing a tax return or what have you. So, so I guess on the one hand, that was sort of, you know, an interesting uh, revelation to me that, hey, this is, this can be good for business, the social side of it and playing golf and, and knowing when to be self-deprecating around people that are senior to you or whatever. So, so that's one, I guess, bringing it into the context of, you know, the, the company in the book of trying to find that balance that you're talking about of pushing too hard, uh, managing a team or what have you. I'm not, and I've said this, people that worked with me have heard me say this several times. I am not some charismatic, on a soapbox, Tony Robbins, peer leader type of manager. It's not who I, I am. Right? I can testify but, to that. Yeah. So my, my hope is that I am somebody who, over time, people will realize he's going to work really hard. He's going to show up early. He's going to stay late. He's going to not try. He's not going to take credit for things. It'll be we, we, we. Nobody works for me. We work together. And, you know, when something bad happens, it, it's going to be on me. Yeah. Or, so, or, or an initiative isn't going well. We'll figure it out together. That's, that's on me. Um, the problem we had in this company was if you have a business that is relatively stable with a, culture of people who have bought in and have a mission that's driving them. And there's not all sorts of uncertainty or vindictive behavior or destructive behavior from the outside. Then I think that type of leadership work, um, quiet team-based show up, get it done. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I think that works. The problem is when you're constantly getting undermined or taking those body punches and the clock is ticking or the company's facing liquidity issues or you're trying to explain to your staff, you know, once every three months, there's another litigation hold email going out because of litigation or, or criminal investigation, the, the waters are getting poisoned. And, and I think in hindsight, that was a real challenge for me was I, I couldn't lead quietly by example because it was a constant uncertainty in the air. And that uncertainty was getting fanned by certain other parties. If I pushed too, too hard and tried to demand people to get on board, that's not going to work either, right? There was already, you know, I was viewed as a suit 
coming into this business. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, look, in the end, it failed, right? The business failed. And it failed for a lot of reasons. You know, it's like a plane crash. It doesn't crash because of one or two variables. It crashes because of the convergence of five, six, or seven variables. Um, I I don't know if management style contributed to it. I don't know if we could have gathered people more quickly to be on board by taking different tactics. I don't know if we could have cleaned house quicker. But I think all of those variables made it an extremely challenging environment to manage under the normal circumstances. It's a great answer. And I appreciate it. There's a, there's a funny quote. There's this guy, Tony, and I guess he's at the driving range. (laughs) Tony was a short stocky guy with an even shorter backswing. I heard him say, everything's going to the right. Why the hell is everything going to the right? I wanted to say, because your stance is wide open, you're coming across the ball and you're standing up at impact. It has to go right. Instead, I remain silent. (laughs) There's a lot of self-restraint. You you show a lot of self-restraint in the book, but as the book goes on and the uh, story becomes more dire and the pressure rises, the language in the book changes. Your ability to remain restrained changes. And it also starts to take a tremendous toll on you physically as well as emotionally is what I'm reading. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting that you noticed that. And then it was not just to be clear. I wrote this book and I didn't intend to write a book. Number one, Uh, I wrote this book in literally 60 days from beginning to end. Very, you know, I know some of the early releases even had typos in it. Um, Very, very little editing other than, you know, verb tense and things. And, and so in hindsight, looking back at it, I've noticed the same thing. Um, early on, it is more written in a more parochial manner. Um, there's, you know, less inappropriate language, or less sarcasm or whatever. Um, and as time goes on, it, it gets darker. The language gets a little bit worse. My tolerance for, for nonsense diminishes. And I think, and that's all honest, authentic sort of stream of consciousness. But it also it's reality, and and I and you know I talk a lot about dreams, not a lot, but I, I mentioned a number of dreams that I had that are that are true and really accurate. And with Parkinson's, you know, one of the problems with Parkinson's for many Parkinson's patients is, is your dreams become incredibly vivid and, and at times very disturbing. And um, and I've always had I've always been one who dreams anyway, uh, and I can remember my dreams, but they've gotten even crazier and and, and worse. In hindsight, looking at the way the book was written, I didn't realize it, but I think that the that tone, the the changing of the tone over time, is telling the reader that you know this can't go on much longer. Your tolerance for this nonsense is not going to last, and it's going to take a toll physically and mentally. And I think even my the dreams that I referenced are a clear indication that I was heading into a very dark place. Yeah, and and you bring it up, and it's important for our listeners to understand during the multi-year tenure at this organization that you were trying to, you know, build an equilibrium and bring it to profitability. You were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and I I remember you and I were talking at the time, and you called me up and shared with me that you had been diagnosed with this disease, and I uh, I said, "Gee, Steve, I I wanted to talk to you today about business." But I don't feel like I can do that right now. And you corrected me instantaneously. 
you said, uh, oh, the hell with that, Gary. Come on. That's what I want to talk about. And so, one, I was relieved when you said that to me because I didn't, you know, when you have a friend who's hurting or suffering, you want to give them everything you can possibly do, but you also don't know how to sometimes. So for you saying to me, oh, I want to talk about work was a little bit like letting me off the hook in a way, Steve. But I also think, you know, there's something in the book about you talk about a lack of sleep. You talk about, and I can't tell whether it's the stress related to the business or your, yeah, both. your growing illness. You talk about the physical wear and tear on your body. But the one thing I love that you wrote that I suffer from and feel and can totally relate to, and I think other people who hear this will relate to this. When you're alone in bed at night and you're thinking about oh. a problem, it grows in that dark room like a kid. Yeah like a kid with a monster under the bed. And I've been in situations where I've got whatever problem it is at work or whatever thing that I don't have right in my life that I want to be better. And I sit alone with it at night and I know my wife's sleeping next to me and everybody's quiet in the house and my heart rate picks up and the pace <laughs> of my thinking picks up and I start to spiral. Now, my only cure for that is to open up a Kindle or a book and start to just try and calm myself down and get tired again. But the amazing thing, the, the amazing relief is when you finally get to morning, I put my two feet on the ground. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just start to deal with it. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost yeah. it's like as long as I can box, I can do it. As long as I can get out and, and manage it, whether it's yeah. phone calls or talking to people or making a decision. But at night, Steve, it's vicious, isn't it? And it's so self-assaulting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And it, it's awful when, when you're. Yeah, whether it's a personal family matter or it's a work matter, it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't vary. If you're the if you're the only one awake in the middle of the night, um, the problem seems you know um, insurmountable. And and I put that in there. I, I did put I put it in the book from a business perspective because I I wanted I guess in both even on a personal perspective because I know other people. Ex experience that and i want and I, I just wanted people to hear from someone else go oh, jesus at least there might be a little bit of peace knowing that you know i just listened to steve and, and gary these two poor bastards have the same problem that i have in the middle of the night like it, there might be some peace in knowing that there's some you know okay someone else has to do has dealt with that too and they came out the other side the sun comes up in the morning it's amazing like you're right whether it's putting your two feet on the floor and getting going or just all of a sudden your wife stirs and she's getting up and the dogs are moving around and the sun's up and you're like, Oh, you know what? Let me get my pad and paper and put my list together and figure out how to attack these problems today. And, and, and so that, that's sort of the last, you know, one of the last themes of the book for me, you know, there's sort of a, the book is sort of broken up into a bunch of different things, maybe it's four different levels or something, right? Sort of a interesting sports industry story an interesting failure of due diligence you know, then there's like managing through a difficult culture, managing through, you know, a corrupt or even criminal enterprise. And then the last, I guess, would be like, you know, the human condition and sort of personal resiliency. And I think that what you just touched on kind of, you know, speaks to a lot of that, which is, hey, look, no matter how bad it gets, you know, and in this story, it gets pretty bad. You, you've got to come out the other side. Like you can't give up, right? I mean, even if the business fails in the end, which stinks, believe me, you're going to be okay, and and you'll find another door is going to open, or you'll find 
peace and acceptance and redemption in some fashion. But I just want people to, I, I want different constituents to get different things from this book. And probably the most important constituent is the one who might be suffering and to read it and say, ah, oh, Jesus, this poor guy, look at him. Every time he turned around, he's getting pounded and he still figured out how to come out the backside of it. To me, that felt good. It felt like a good way to wrap the book up, you know? Yeah. And, and I appreciated it and, and reading it and seeing it build and then getting to a point, quite frankly, of just complete failure and then calmness. There is a there's a part in the book, Steve, where there's a gentleman being accused. Complete of, failure. I don't know. <laughs> well, I didn't know you were going to hit me with, with, with the phrase complete failure. But yeah, well, thanks. it dies. Right. I mean. And, yeah. and part of it is COVID related and is a lot, I think majority of it is COVID related because you, from, in talking to you, you had it right where you wanted it towards the end, but then kind of COVID stole it from you with all the, you know, with all the cancellations. But Steve, there's a, there's a piece of the book where there's a gentleman being accused or being investigated and he started crying to you on the phone and, and you said to him, look, you, you can't go home to your wife and your daughters like that. I don't want, you know, they can't see you like that. And I found it unfair for you to say that. And I, I want to understand where you're coming from with that, because isn't that kind of like, like layering on this men don't get to feel, men don't get to emote, uh, men have to be the stalwart, steel-faced thing. And doesn't that put additional pressure and unwellness around people that are asked to behave that way? And isn't that kind of a little bit of a reflection on yourself and what you kind of tortured yourself with through the process? I mean, shouldn't you just say to the guy, geez, I'm, I'm so empathetic. And I know you were empathetic and there's a ton of empathy from you in this book on all levels. So I don't want to characterize you as a brute in yeah. any way, but why couldn't the guy go home and, and seek comfort in a more open way? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I hadn't even thought of it. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I, shouldn't have suggested that to him. I'll give you some context. You know, that was uh, literally, I think it was the the night the Department of Justice raided our soccer subsidiary. Uh, he was the COO of that company. His hands were quite dirty. I think he was realizing from what he had heard that day at the federal building that they had him and others. He was in the crosshairs. He'd been handed a, a target letter, not something that's that lovely to receive, I wouldn't imagine. And all I pictured was this guy's unraveling. He's thinking about potential jail. He's thinking about walking in that house. And I knew that he had two very young children. And I just thought, God, I'd picture him going in and being a disaster. And I just thought that's not uh, at this moment, his wife and kids don't need that. And um, I was I was also a little bit worried about what he I, I just didn't feel good about his state of mind at that moment. So I, I, I guess it was a quick decision, but it was like, hey, gather yourself, right? Like, stop, get control. It's not fair to your wife, not fair to your kids right now. You almost like, hey, you put yourself in this spot. You know, we'll figure it out over the next couple of days, probably. But the last thing you need are your two little daughters watching you come in the house like a like a total mess. Maybe it was the wrong thing, but that was that was where my head was that day. Steve, we've talked a lot about the complexities and difficulties that you faced at this 
this company. Tell me some of the good stuff that you saw. I mean, where were the wins and are there stories and anecdotes Um, about great coaches helping kids or cool community events and what's where, where's the silver lining? Um, so even through this, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I come back to the industry itself presents such an incredible opportunity for coaches and business people to have an impact on young lives, right? Assuming that the priorities are set properly. And there's nothing wrong with highly aspirational, so-called elite um, athletes who want to go play in college or dream of playing at the next level. That's fine. As long as the foundation of all of that is set in values and principles. And so those things happen every day all over the country in this business and in other businesses. Um, Great coaches. great insights, great training provided by, you know, organizations like the Positive Coaching Alliance, um, kids from these types of programs turning around and mentoring and working with kids at Best Buddies or Special Olympics and so on. Um, those are the things that I think are so um, attractive about this industry, number one. Um, number two, you know, one thing that we saw happening uh, and we were really close to launching a pretty special program was the alignment of our company, um, you know, sort of a live event and, and club type business with a global brand around embedding programming and curricula that includes value systems. So, you know, Nike, Adidas and others, they're all at the point now where they know that this generation of kids um, are pretty principled and um, are drawn to certain causes. And, you know, the the brands want to support that and they want to be aligned with that. And so seeing that opportunity of a global brand with a big voice and a massive stable of professional athletes that influence kids um, working with these smaller organizations to drive those value sets to me was really cool. And, um, and, and, you know, cause we weren't, and, and in those discussions, the conversations were around, you know, what does that curriculum look like? What are those values? How do we create, you know, a, a series of steps for kids from the time they're 10 years old until they head off to college that are building leadership and uh, sort of humanity elements that make them good corporate citizens when they're coming out of college. Um, it wasn't around how to influence purchasing decisions or direct to consumer strategy. It was authentic and real hearing the way those brands are thinking about this, this generation. So, you know, on, on a more macro level, that, that, that to me is a really exciting opportunity um, in the market. Um, and then kind of micro level in the business, God, we had so many really great people who stayed with the company through the difficult times, uh, who joined the company, even knowing that it was broken to a certain extent, but saw the opportunity to have your HR manager, Steve, your HR manager seemed like a huge help. Top notch. Unbelievable. I have one here too. I have one here and I read, I could reflect on mine and seeing yours. And when you have a partner like that in the business, Steve, it's so valuable. 
Oh yeah. I mean, she, he, you know, forget titles. He should have been the CEO of the company in terms of her understanding of not just the way, not just what people needed in the business to feel fulfilled and inspired and have a pathway of personal growth. But, you know, she also understood and was constantly learning um, how the business operated, you know, literally like from a pure operational perspective. So she could figure out what people needed to be successful and, and so on. And so, and, and yeah, and I, I talk about it in the book. I mean, when I interviewed her, you know, I told her everything about the business because I didn't want someone to take the job and be like a week later, what the hell? You sold me a bill of goods. I wanted it to be a completely, you know, um, transparent interview process. And she looked at it as an opportunity to clean things up and put in place processes and controls and, and such. And, uh, you know, she exceeded expectations. Um, woman that came in to head up all technology for same thing, just incredible motor, you know, tireless worker, just want, wanted to do a great job every day. Um, we had people in finance who were awesome. I had a young guy who worked alongside of me every day. I don't even know what title I'd call him, but he was my right hand. And um, he would anticipate what needed to be done and didn't care how dirty it was or how difficult it was or how late he had to be there. He would raise his hand and take on the task. So there were great stories like that. And, um, you know, it goes across on, I leave out a bunch of people, but there were tons of incredibly good people. Um, and then service providers, I mentioned it in the back of the book. I mean, there's attorneys that, you know, just, I used to say the word attorney and cringe thinking about how, how expensive they are by the hour. And oftentimes you're using them because you're in a difficult spot. Um, there's three or four of those guys who I consider dear friends because of how they stepped up and supported the business and supported me and, and genuinely cared during the most difficult times. So there were a lot of really positive, you know, things that came out of a very difficult circumstance. Steve, I know that you are a very competitive person because I've uh, been in situations where we were younger and I tried to either beat you at something or keep up with you at something. And so I know you've played in a ton of games and a ton of tournaments and a ton of different events. I'm just curious, what do you think you've gained more from, Steve, the wins or the losses? The losses. No question. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, not even, no, no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I just, no doubt. I learned more. In, I learned more through this book and this experience than I learned you know, obviously four years of undergrad, two years of graduate school, and God knows how many years of, of working or, and or successful projects and investments. I learned more here than anywhere else. Um, painful as hell. And there's moments where you're thinking, I will never, ever say that I learned from this. Um, late nights on the train, riding home, just you know, awful, awful days, you know, like this will never have any redeeming qualities. And yet six months later, I can tell you, it, it was one of the most um, uh, educational experiences I've ever been involved in. Both in wrapping up, Steve, professionally and personally, professionally and, and personally. In wrapping up, 
you know, there's a lot of reflection on you and, and Christine and the kids. And I'm just curious, it seemed like you had admitted ignoring or neglecting your relationship with your family because you're so immersed in this challenge at work. But when you come out the other side, towards the end of the book, you know, you talk a lot about gratitude and you talk about reconnecting with Chase because the Peloton experience and Georgia caring for you. And I know that your oldest son is, you know, obviously a little bit more removed and a little bit more on his own, but did you find peace and reconnection towards the end with your family and how are they today? Yeah. Yeah. Knock on wood. Everybody's, everybody's great. Everybody's healthy. Um, we are addicted to Peloton. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I full disclaimer, I don't own stock in Peloton or anything like that, but we are, we are as a family addicted to, to it. Um, and yeah, you know, it was, um, it was a period of time where I, it wasn't like I lost contact or sight of what was important um, because I was drawn to something else. It was, it was just, um, it, it became so consuming out of necessity that I was, you know, that I became disconnected from my family. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I'm not saying it well, it wasn't like so I had some midlife crisis and I wanted to be hanging out somewhere. And I, as a result, I left my family behind. This was, you know, I had invested my own capital. I felt responsible for other investors and people in the business. I'm on the board, so I have a fiduciary duty. I, I become an officer of this company because we had to make changes. And so I took that those responsibilities very seriously and felt that this thing needed um, constant attention. Um, and I, I think I realized at some point towards the end that there is there is a price to pay for that mentally, physically, and your family relationships. And, and, you know, things were a blur, holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, you know, and, you know, I think, um, yeah, the my relationship with my family, I think is, is, is never been better. And I'm hoping that this kind of, awakening as you call it um continues to lead towards uh, professional behavior and conduct and a lifestyle that that um, ensures that i have a balance going forward and i'm confident it will i you know, i'm not as somebody once said to me you can't go back and i'm not going back <laughs> <laughs> i like that at the end of the book there are uh, discussion topics for a case study. And you lay out almost like a curriculum if you want to use this book as a teaching guide for all sorts of really interesting topics. If if a school or a league or a association wanted to reach out to you, Steve, what's the best way to get a hold of you? What are your best contact information? Uh yeah, actually in the in the very inside, well you can you can um you can always get me at uh, Griffin. You want my email address? Like literally? Yeah. However you want people so, to reach out to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get me at Griffin at G5capital.com. Griffin is uh, G-R-I-F-F-I-N at G5, the letter G, the number five, and then the word capital with an A, 
Facebook.com. Uh, in, in the front of the book, there's an email or contact um, information as well. And, and to that point about the curriculum or case studies or what have you, it's interesting. We've so been contacted by um, several public accounting firms, the Association for uh, Internal Auditors, uh, fraud examiners, um, and so on. And that we're actually didn't really didn't plan on this, but we're creating little sub curricula and case studies that come out of the book that um, CPAs and others will be actually earning their continuing professional education credit. Cool. By simply reading the book and and um, completing the little case studies, so kind of a nice um, byproduct of it. Steve, thanks so much for being on today. We wish you tremendous success with your book. And uh, as always, say hi to Christine and the kids. And uh, we'll see you around town. Thank you, Gary. I enjoyed it. All the best to your family. You've been listening to On The Whistle. For more, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit us at onthewhistle.com.